0: Welcome to the Nation's Church Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. so great to be speaking with you and bringing the word. Um, and I do want to kind of, I guess, start with a little bit of a warning <laughs> for you all this morning. I mean, Shannon kind of warmed you into it a little bit for me. Thank you, Shannon. <laughs> um, but we are, we're in a season of encounter. I think that's obviously Pastor Chrissy so beautifully spoke into that where we're really making a deliberate space um, for encountering the presence of God. But the truth is that we also need to be just as deliberate in terms of stewarding (laughs) that presence that we're encountering. And I really want to talk to you about that today. And because we do, we love this time of year, don't we? (laughs) Like, we love this time of year where it's just, you know, conference and like Debbie Prescott's coming and we're probably going to see, you know, some incredible miracles and healings and all this kind of stuff. And we're like, this is great. All these prayer meetings where I come and get to just bask in the presence of the Lord and, you know, really go after my breakthrough. (laughs) You know, we love it. But I just want to, I guess, tell you the truth. And the truth is that sometimes the encounter is a confrontation. Sometimes the encounter is a confrontation. As Paul, or Saul as he was then, encountered on the way to Damascus. See, Saul thought he was doing the work of the Lord, but he was actually an obstacle to it. And it took an encounter with the presence of Jesus to literally knock him off his horse and cause him to go blind. (laughs) That actually it was uncomfortable, but it positioned him for his greatest purpose. And as we know the apostle Paul, what a gift, what a gift. And I believe that God is doing a work in his church today. I believe that he's wanting to do a work in his body across the earth today. But I also believe that it's going to take sometimes being confronted with the truth. And I'm here to tell you today that this message is done in complete obedience, so be kind to the messenger. Can we all agree that we're on the same side, that I also am a recipient of this word first and foremost? I've just had a bit longer to warm up to it and wrestle with it than you guys but don't say I haven't warned you because this word today is probably less a sermon and more a prophetic word to his church and your response to it matters because you're part of it and it might knock you off your horse. You might feel blindsided. It might be uncomfortable but I promise you that it will position you for the purpose of what he wants to do in and through his church today. Can we agree? Amen. Amen. Let's just bow our heads Before we open the Word of God, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can gather around your Word. And Lord, we gather ourselves under its authority. We submit ourselves and reverence the authority of your Word, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that you would do a work in your church today and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I command every assignment of darkness to come and steal, kill and destroy what you want to do in your people to go right now in the name of Jesus. I thank you that it must bend and bow and reverence the name of Jesus and as we do right now. Father, would you do a work in your people? Holy Spirit, come. Every person in this room, every person watching online, will you fill the room with your breath? Lord, I thank you that you're going to break the shackles of religion today. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that your church will rise as a holy and pure and spotless bride in the days to come. In Jesus' mighty name, Amen. Amen. Whew. Who feels the presence of God? Incredible, incredible. Well, would you turn with me to one Samuel four verse one? Thank you, Matt. <laughs> um. 1 Samuel 4 verse 1. Are you ready? Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Apec. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today? Before the Philistines, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised a great shout that the ground shook. "'Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, "'What is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp?' "'When they learned that the ark of the Lord "'had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. "'A God has come into the camp,' they said." Oh, no, nothing like this has happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated again. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The title of my message today is playing with the box. Playing with the box. I can see you're all intrigued. <laughs> Let me bring some context to these events for you. There was more and more Philistines at this stage immigrating into the land of Canaan and the land Um, that was promised to Israel, and they were on a campaign to take more and more territory from the people of God. And they were also being strengthened by military resources and arms from Greece, right? And so Israel were in danger of being diminished down to a subjective and very familiar position of slavery in their own land. Like, this reality of slavery is the very thing the Lord had delivered them from in Egypt and here they were in danger of becoming that again and this was a pretty uneven fight already but even so it's a battle that they actually should have won right after all they are the covenant people of God They're the covenant people of God that comes with a promise of protection and victory that God would deliver them from the hand of their enemies, but they lose, you know, and feeling entitled to their usual victory, they begin to question why the magic had worn off, so to speak. So, of course, they go and get the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it into the camp, onto the battlefield. Now, I imagine that they did this because the role the ark had played in some pretty significant victories in the past for them, right? When Joshua led the people to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land, the ark was carried before them, right? When the feet of the priests carrying it on their shoulders touched the edge of the waters, the waters miraculously drew back and allowed the people to cross on dry land, You know, when Israel faced their first big battle to take territory in Jericho, the ark was carried before them as they marched around the city for seven days before the walls fell. So it made sense to me, like it makes sense to me that after losing to the Philistines, that Israel thought, you know what, this is an impossible situation. We can't do this without God. God you know, let's go fetch the ark, right? It makes sense. Like surely it would bring them victory. It would at least make the people believe they could win. And indeed the troops, they are buoyed by this. They are inspired by the presence of the ark and they make a whole lot of noise. But the truth is that all their noise does is just make, made their en- enemy determined to fight even harder. They knew the precedence of Israel's God having their back in the past, you know, sending plagues upon Egypt and, you know, killing their enemies. And so both sides front up to this fight. And even with the ark in their camp, Israel lose again. But this time in even greater measure. And even worse, the ark which carried the presence of God is captured and taken into enemy hands, right? This is a disaster. And God has drawn my attention to this account in recent months. And I sense it contains both caution and keys for the people of God on the earth today. See, I think like the nation of Israel at the time, we find ourselves in a similar context. There is an opposition which seems to be multiplying, infiltrating every area that rightfully should belong to us as the people of God and this opposition they're well resourced and it kind of feels as if in comparison we are becoming outnumbered as if the people of God are in danger of becoming a subjective people but even so this is a battle that we can and we should win And just like in this account, I think we understand very well that we need the presence of God to win, but we need to pay attention as to how we are appropriating and stewarding that presence. Because the concerning thing here is that Israel kind of trusted in the wrong thing here. They were treating the ark of God like some kind of lucky charm to bring them victory. Don't get me wrong. The box was really special. (laughs) It was beautiful. You know, made of acacia wood and gold and there were cherubim with wings. But in the end, this was just a man-made box. It was what it carried that made it significant and powerful. It was supposed to just be a visible vessel for them to carry and steward the presence of an invisible and holy God. It was a reminder to them of this incredible gift of covenant that they had with the creator of heaven and earth. Do you ever give a toddler this really great gift and they end up playing with the box? (laughs) Exhibit A, the people of God. (laughs) It's true. The ark was simply a box which allowed God to dwell with his people right? It represented his presence and throne on earth and his covenant with Israel and therefore it did need to be treated with great reverence. It was after all the presence of the Almighty. You know, only priests could actually carry it and even then they couldn't touch it or they would die because the glory of God is actually too much to bear for imperfect men. You know, the ark was kept in the most inner part of the tabernacle where only priests could enter. Once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would enter the tabernacle and he would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice upon the cover of the ark, which atoned for the sins of an entire nation. And the priest who did this had to be fully right with God or else he would be struck dead. So you need to understand that in this day, stewarding the presence of God and their covenant with him required both great reverence and also great repentance. And while Israel had obviously remembered the presence of the box in crossing the Jordan and bringing down Jericho, they had obviously forgotten that it also required something of them that it also required a radical obedience to God. They had to heed his every instruction or they would perish. The Jordan was in flood when they crossed over. That is the most dangerous time to cross a river, right? It would have been easy in that moment when they were called to cross over to think that they just had to do what they'd done in the past the last time they had to cross over a body of water and that God would do the same thing, do it the same way. But no, they were instructed in a whole new way. In Jericho, they marched for seven days around the outside of a fortress, (laughs) leaving themselves exposed to attack. That's literally like the worst strategy for a game of dodgeball ever. Just like walk around, walk around them right in front of them for seven days. This level of obedience to me exhibits something. This level of obedience exhibited that they had complete confidence in their covenant with God. That it was solid and they knew it was. Probably what contributed to this level of confidence was that on both of these occasions, before these miraculous victories, not only did it require the presence of God, but it required consecration to God. See, before the Jordan crossing, we read that Joshua called the people to sanctify themselves, to consecrate themselves. Before the fall of Jericho, the sons of Israel were called to circumcision, These were acts of both reverence and repentance for the holiness of God, which preceded these miraculous victories by his power. But at the time of this battle with the Philistines, Israel was not walking right with God. See, earlier in Samuel, we read that even those charged with guarding the Ark of the Covenant, the sons of the priest, Eli, Hophni and Phinehas who were actually priests themselves were living in sin and disobedience and Eli knew this and he had allowed it to carry on even when God had warned him. They had no real reverence for who they stood before. There was no repentance for their sin. They were disobedient to the very presence of God that they were called to guard They thought having the box was enough and given it was pagan practice to bring the images of gods and idols to war, Israel had adopted this attitude to God where he was there as life insurance rather than as Lord. After the first defeat, instead of humbly repenting and seeking God, they turned to methods that God never approved. They only cared about the outcome it would bring them. They relied on the representation of their covenant, than actually keeping it. They revered the things of God over God himself. Israel had always, always had a propensity for calling on the same God that they refused to obey. And the truth is we still do today. Sometimes we find ourselves sitting on the battlefield in defeat, wondering why the magic isn't working anymore. We often want to place a demand on his power without observing his holiness. We think having the things of God in our proximity is enough to bring us the victory and the breakthrough. That being in his presence is a substitute to bowing to it like the Bible that sits on the mantle in our home, to display to everyone the fact that we're Christians even though we don't observe what's in it. In place of Jehovah himself, we trust the box of church attendance like it's a checkbox condition on our life insurance policy. We come in and out of the tent of meeting without stewarding the covenant that we have with the God that we came to meet with. We cling to the methods that have worked in the past for our breakthrough rather than listening to his instruction today. Trying to duplicate previous spiritual victories by going through the same procedures, the same rituals and just like the Pharisees ticking the box of formal worship as a substitute for inspecting the condition of our hearts and getting right with God. We bring out the box We drag out the box, the representation of covenant, without regard for what it represents. We're happy to sit in a seat and listen without obeying. We lift our hands as a representation of surrender without being willing to give anything up. We love the expression of worship without the reality of submission. We're willing to fill our church altars every week, but not lay our lives upon it. You know, maybe our prayer wouldn't seem like such a task if we didn't just reach for his power, but we actually sat in awe of his holiness. Maybe we wouldn't treat his presence of common while we honor the box. See, Israel thought they could still win by having the box. Though they did not bow in reverence and repentance to the very presence within it, it had become an idol. And when I read this account, I heard the Lord say, my people have to stop playing with the box. Stop fronting up with the representation of my presence without any reverence for it. Stop with all the empty hype and noise because you have the appearance of covenant without being willing to keep it. We've got to be careful of the noise coming out of our camp right now, that it isn't empty. We say we want revival, but we need to be careful what we're actually praying for. Because in scripture, revival is synonymous with the repentance of God's people. A harvest of souls is the fruit of revival. That happens in God's people when they come back to full consecration and obedience to him. Has it ever crossed your mind that God wants revival more than we do? But perhaps the reason we're not seeing it is because we want revival without repentance. Just because we're carrying the box doesn't mean we're positioned for victory. The people of God will be found wanting in this battle on the earth today. If we are reaching for his power without first bowing to his holiness. Trying to cross over without consecration and trying to overcome without obedience. I believe God is calling his church back to repentance and reverence. Why? Because it's his strategy for victory. It always has been Two Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves... And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I know that this is a hard word, but the battle is upon us. It's here and we got to prepare. We have a growing opposition, but we have a covenant promise and we have a covenant keeping God. It is us that waver. But see, there's hope. The good news, and I know you've all been waiting for it. (laughs) When is she going to (laughs) stop? The good news is that God knew. God knew. He knew that we could never, ever keep our end of the covenant. And the fact is that this very box, this very Ark of the Covenant only pointed to the hope of a new one that would far surpass it. See, the items that were contained in the Ark were the tablets of stone where the law was written, a law that God knew that we were never able to fulfill in our own strength. So he would send Jesus to fulfill the law on our behalf. The jar of manna, which was bread supplied from heaven in the wilderness, it was there as a testimony of God's provision for his people, which would one day be surpassed by Jesus, the bread of life given from heaven. And the rod of Aaron, who God chose as his priest, which miraculously buttered and bore almonds overnight which would one day be surpassed by our high priest Jesus, who would be our ultimate mediator before God. And of course, there was the mercy seat. The place where the blood of sacrifice atoned for the sins of a whole people, fulfilled once and all by Jesus. And even the box of wood and gold, a picture of the humanity and the divinity of Christ. See, this box was just a foreshadow, a foreshadowing of the greatest work of redemption and victory that there is. This is where it gets really interesting to observe the latter part of this story after the defeat. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 5, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face, on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, Fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Okay, let me frame this for you. Israel has their worst day ever. Because of their sin and their disobedience. And because of that, the dwelling place for their God gets taken and hung up like some kind of trophy of war in the temple of their enemy. The Philistines' victory looked complete. And yet, even though it looked like defeat, Yahweh has the last laugh. He brings the statue of their God, Dagon into a prostrate position of submission and worship before his presence. Not only that, but his hands and his head are broken off as well. And you've got to understand that in this region at the time, the heads and the hands of enemies were often brought back to camp as trophies to show complete defeat and establish a body count. Beautiful imagery. We see that after wreaking more havoc on the Philistines, the ark is eventually returned and Israel turns back to God. But I want to just point something out to you. I read this whole story and I asked myself why God would allow the ark, the dwelling, you know, the the presence that was supposed to dwell with his people. Why would he allow that to be handed over to the enemy? And then I remembered. Then I remembered that this ark was just a foreshadow of the Ark of the New Covenant, Jesus Christ, who because of our sin and disobedience, God allowed him to be handed over to the enemy, where he was hung up like a trophy. The enemy's victory seemed complete, but just as Colossians 2 tells us, it was there on the cross that he brought down and disarmed the powers and the authorities of evil into submission, triumphing over them and making a spectacle of them complete defeat. How amazing is our God? How rich are his scriptures? See, this old covenant picture was just pointing us to a new covenant promise. He'd already planned how to keep covenant with a people that couldn't keep theirs while paying the price of our disobedience. He destroyed the powers and the principalities of the very evil that tried to ensnare us. He turned what looked like our greatest defeat into our greatest victory, glorifying Himself, showing Himself almighty and sovereign. So if in humble repentance, we would just submit to His Lordship rather than just reach for His help, we too would walk in greater victory than we could ever hope for. See, the problem was that Israel believed God was all about delivering them from their oppressive enemies such as the Philistines. And we still do today. They didn't realise what He desired to deliver them from was the oppression of their sin. Generations later, Israel still didn't understand that Jesus wasn't there to deliver them from the Roman Empire. He was still trying to deliver His people from a much greater slavery to a much greater enemy. So as we enter this battle that is before us on the earth today, would we remember that he is faithful to humble our enemies if we would first humble ourselves. This new covenant It doesn't require our perfection to enter the presence of God. His laws are no longer written on tablets for us to keep, but they're written on the hearts of His people. It doesn't require sacrifice on our behalf to atone for our sins. It's a covenant of grace received by faith. The only thing that it still asks of us is our repentance and our obedience. That's why the forerunner that prepared the way for Christ himself, John the Baptist, preached a message of repentance. And every encounter with Jesus either started with an invitation to follow in obedience or ended with the words, now go and sin no more. In the book of Acts at Pentecost, where the church was birthed, Peter says this, Acts 2 verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and on the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Praise the Lord. You know where it says there, in the last days... It was talking about this moment. It was talking about Pentecost. The last days are the latter days of the new covenant. The covenant of Jesus Christ that we are a part of, that they were a part of at Pentecost. See, we the church, we're not stewards of a box of wood and gold anymore, but we're stewards and and carriers of the Spirit of God Himself and His Word. We're ministers of a new covenant. We are the presence and the voice of the almighty God on the earth calling people to repentance. And that a holy God, that a holy God would not only allow us to come near him, but carry him. Not just to come near him, but to carry him. That is the wildest reality of God that I or you will ever encounter. I can't get past that. (laughs) Let us not be like the sons of Eli who were disobedient to the presence of God that they were called to guard and carry. Surely if we were aware, if we were aware of what we carried, it would drive us to reverence and awe. If foreign gods have no choice but to bow in his presence, surely we, the people of God, can. We Christians, we love to say that in the end we win, don't we? But I want to tell you the truth, in the end he wins. In the end he wins. Whether we win doesn't depend on our perfection, but it does require our obedience. And it can't just be a few of us just as the first ark returned Jesus' will to. And he's coming back for his church. Not a people in possession of a box with his name on it, but a people that have consecrated themselves unto him. Thanks for listening to the Nations Church Podcast. For more info, please visit nationschurch.com.